Chapter Six of One Third Off. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Brian Ness. One Third Off by Irvin S. Cobb. Chapter Six. More anon. Well, I made up my mind, having tried violent exercise in the gymnasium, coupled with violent language in the steam-room, and having found neither or both had been of the least avail in trimming down my proportions, but on the contrary had augmented them to the extent of nearly ten pounds live weight, that I would let well enough alone. If twere my ordained fate to be fat, why, then, so be it. I'd be fatly fatalistic, and go on through life undulating and rippling." If an all-wise providence meant to call me to the estate of being the bulkiest writing-man using the English language for a vehicle, then let Hilaire Belloc look to his laurels, and Gilbert K. Chesterton to his unholsterings. There was one consolation. Thank heavens the championship would remain in America. The years go marching by in ordered processional. A great war bursts and for a space endures. In our own land, prohibition is nationally enacted, and women's suffrage comes to be, and Irving Berlin, reading the signs of the times, decides to write the Blue Laws Blues. Fashions of thought change, other fashions also. A girl who was born without hips or eyebrows, and who in childhood was regarded as a freak, now finds herself, at the age of eighteen, exactly in the mode, thus proving that all things come to those who wait. Czechoslovakia is discovered, the American forces spent three days taking Chateau Thierry, and three years trying to learn to pronounce it. Ireland undertakes to settle her ancient problem on the basis of self-extermination. Several rich retail profiteers die, the approval being hardy and general, and on arriving at heaven experience great difficulty in passing through the needle's eye, or tradesman's entrance. Somebody tells Henry Ford about what some high priest did in Jerusalem nearly two thousand years ago, and in the first flush of his startled indignation he becomes violently anti-Semitic. General Pershing returns from the battlefields of Europe, universally acclaimed, a model of military efficiency, and wearing so many medals that alongside him, John Philip Sousa, by contrast, looks absolutely nude. His friends project him into the political arena, and the result is summed up in a phrase— Lafayette, he ain't there. Unavailing efforts are made by a rebellious and unreconciled few of us to find a presidential candidate willing to run on a platform of but four planks, namely, wines, ales, liquors, and cigars. Harding wins, scattering second. Cox also ran. Slogan, he kept us out of McAdoo. Manhattan Island, from whence the rest of the country derives its panics, its jazz tremblers, and its girl shows, develops a severe sinking sensation in the pit of its financial stomach, accompanied by acute darting pains at the juncture of broad and wall. This is the way Thomas Carlyle used to start off a new chapter, and I like it. It denotes erudition. Zigfield builds a new Follies show around twelve pairs of winsome knee joints. North Dakota blows down the nonpartisan league and discovers that darned thing was loaded in both barrels. The Prussians are pained to note that for some reason or other a number of people seem to harbor a grudge against them. Nine thousand Kentucky mint patches are plowed under and the sights sown with rosemary. That's for remembrance. 
In New York, plans are undertaken for construing the 18th Amendment along the lines of the selective draft, upon the theory that booze is a bad thing for some people, and much too good for many of the others. The word intrigued creeps into our language and becomes common property, but the fiction writers saw it first. A businessmen's cabinet, composed almost exclusively of politicians, succeeds a businessmen's cabinet composed almost exclusively of politicians. In order to hurry along the payment of installment one of the indemnity, France whistles up the reserves, and that chore is chored. Pessimists, including many of the old-time Democrats, practically all the maltsters, and Aunt Emma Goldman, are filled with a dismal conviction that creation has gone plumb to perdition in a handbasket. Those more optimistically inclined look upon the brighter side of things, and distill consolation from the thought that nothing is so bad but what it might have been worse. Trotsky might have been born twins. Great Britain has her post-war industrial crisis, serial number 24. The Sinn Féin enlarges the British national anthem to read God Save the King till we can get at him. By a strict party vote, Congress decides the share in the victory achieved by the AEF was overwhelmingly Republican, but that the airship program went heavily Democratic. Popular distrust of home-brew recipes assumes a nationwide phase. This brings us up to the early spring of this year of grace, 1921, which is what I have been aiming for all through this paragraph. Quite without warning, I discovered along about the first of March that something ailed me, something was rocking the boat. About my heart there was a sense of pressure, so it seemed to me, or else my imagination was at fault. Mentally I found myself, well, for lack of a better word to express it, logy. Otherwise, in all physical regards, I felt as brisk and pert as ever I have, despite the circumstance of having reached the age when a great many of us are confronted by the distressing discovery that we are rapidly getting no younger. Now, when a man who has always enjoyed such outrageously perfect health, as it has been my good fortune to enjoy, takes note that certain nagging manifestations are persisting within him, it is his duty, or at least it should be his duty, to try to find out the underlying cause of whatever it is that distresses him, and correct the trouble before it becomes chronic. I did not get frightened, I trust I am not a self-alarmist, but I did get worried. I made up my mind that I would not wait, as those who approach middle age so often do, for the medical examiner of an insurance company to scare me into sudden conniption fits but I also made up my mind that I would find out what radically was wrong with me, if anything, and endeavor to master it while the mastering was good. This, though, was after I had harked back to the days of my adolescence. I was born down on the northern edge of the southern range of the North American malaria belt, and when I was growing up, if one seemed intellectually torpid or became filled with an overpowering bodily languor, the indisposition always was diagnosed offhand as a touch of malaria. Accordingly, the victim, taking his own advice or another's, jolted his liver with calomel until the poor thing flinched every time a strange pill was seen approaching it, and then he rounded out the course of treatment with all the quinine the traffic would stand. Recalling these early campaigns, I borrowed of their strategy for use against my present symptoms, if symptoms they were. I took quinine until my ears rang, so that persons passing me on the public highway would halt to listen to the chimes. My head was filled with mysterious, muffled rumblings. It was like living in a haunted house and being one at the same time. 
End of chapter 6. Recorded by Brian Ness.